Hello, before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards as well as a shout out on the show. Thanks to our latest donor, Lulu Custer. Lulu is from the Netherlands and is currently doing an internship at a music media platform. She did a minor in journalism, arts and social sciences at City University in London, and she's diving into the world of freelancing. Thank you very much for supporting the show, Lulu. We've recently launched a new tier for our most generous supporters. If you pledge $20 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when transcribing a huge number of interviews for a reported piece. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Mei Jong. Here's a snippet. The first thing that comes to mind is go before you're ready, I think there's a tendency to want to get all your ducks and drakes in a row, but ultimately you can't inoculate yourself from all eventualities. You just need to go and do it. And if you're a reasonably thoughtful person, chances are very high that you are likely very ready. And I think you should just go for it. And also, as I'm saying, though... Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with playwright and screenwriter Jack Thorne. We spoke to Jack about his early plays, about breaking into screenwriting with Skins, and about working with the BBC, HBO and Netflix. It's a fascinating episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Jack to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. Could we start where all good stories begin at the beginning? Um, How did you get into writing? Uh, by accident, uh, I was uh, at university and trying to be an actor, well, trying to be an actor or a politician, and uh, wasn't very good at either, um, and decided that I wanted to try directing, uh, but discovered it cost £65 a night for um, amateur rights to put on a play, so decided to write a play to save that money, and then discovered the bit I liked was the writing bit. So I kept directing for a while. I just wasn't very good at that either. So it was a process of, uh, you know, trial and error. Uh, 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 and there were a lot of errors in choice of careers. What had been your kind of initial exposure to drama? Had it been TV or were you, did you go to the theatre a lot as a child? How had, you, how had the kind of form grabbed you? Uh, telly, a lot of telly, um, uh, but also youth theatre, amateur dramatics. My mum and dad are very into amateur dramatics. And my dad did take take us to the theatre, you know, every now and again when when there was the opportunity to do that. And then once I got into it, my dad tried to take me a bit more to the theatre. So yeah, but it was it was you know I was running Winslow in the Winslow Boy. It was uh, doing doing bits and pieces like that with my mum and dad's Amdram company. So uh, it was all that kind of thing, really. So it was sort of in your in your DNA from a, a young age. What were some of those early plays at university about? Uh, they were awful. Uh, one was called, uh, well, uh, one was an adaptation of a really lovely book called The Wave by Morton Brew. Um, one was uh, a reinterpretation of King Lear. Uh, oh man, it was awful. Uh, called uh, You Have Been Loved, named after a George Michael song. Um, how, how, did, how did you reinterpret it? Like, did it all end hap- Did it all end happily? Or? No, no. It was sort of telling it from Edgar and Edmund's perspective, but it was—I mean, it was dreadful. It was awful. It was one of the worst things ever. Um, uh, God, I can't remember. There was one called Boy Meets Girl. One called Tender. They were all pretty, you know. But they were—I was working it out, you know—and. Uh, and people came, which was very nice. So, uh, you know, it was really good from that perspective. And you learn a lot from sitting watching an audience as they watch your thing. Um, I read on your Wikipedia profile, so who knows this is true, but that you got a 2-2 at university. First, is that correct? And B, did it ever matter? Uh, yeah, I got Desmond. Uh, uh, yes, uh, um, I, um, I'm uh, very happy with that. <laughs> I, I wasn't very good. I... Uh, 
I never worked out how to write an essay. I always liked facts, and I always was quite good in meetings with people uh, in terms of getting excited about ideas and facts, but I never really worked out how to express them on paper. Um, and no one, uh, people tried to help me, but I just didn't quite have that ability to, you know, I got excited by weird stuff and not necessarily the right stuff in order to in order to do some learning. You mentioned uh, how useful watching the audience was and you were, I'm sure, very self-deprecating about those early experiments, but what did you learn from what you consider to be failures in terms of your early work? What 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 was funny? Because I was writing a lot of uh, funny stuff or trying to write funny stuff, and what what you you can it's like a comedian, a stand up. A stand up will say you have to stand up on stage, and you have to just kind of work out that what people might find funny in the room is very different from what people might funny on, find funny on stage. So there was a lot of that. Um, there was a lot of what people find truth truthful. And 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 the big thing is, you know, what stops the what stops the sweet rappers is and the coughing. Do you know what I mean? You know, that is the test I think for every dramatist, and everyone knows it. You know that that those moments of stillness in a theatre where suddenly everything just kind of goes quiet. Those moments you can feel them, and they are the most exciting moments you have uh, as a writer. And uh, and yeah, I definitely learned about those moments. And there were a couple uh, in those plays, but there was just a lot of coughing moments beside them. How did you go about making your way into it professionally after university in terms of getting an agent, getting your first kind of paid gigs and things? Talk us through that. Uh, I I'd read a thing with Paul Abbott where he said, if someone will pay you to write a menu, then take that job. Uh, so I did a lot of like scouting around for strange things to do and a lot of um uh, uh digital networking i can't i can't talk to people i have no ability to talk to people but i did a lot of um mandy.com was big at the time shooting people and i would contact people on that site and 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 do things like that at the same time i was writing plays all the time and sending them off to theaters uh, and sort of two things happened at the same time, which is that because of a short I'd written, a producer called Ivana McKinnon said, uh, "Would you like to write a film for? We've got this. We've got this small um, monetary fund to pay um, newbie writers to write first drafts of a film for us." Um, and I wrote a film called uh, Scouting Book for Boys, um, which then she got made uh, amazingly. And uh, at the same time, uh, I submitted to uh, Teresa Topolsky at the Tricycle um, a uh, a play I'd written for National Youth Theatre called uh, A Bedroom. And she said, this is quite good. And she gave it to Mike Bradwell and the team at the Bush, and they commissioned a second draft of that, and that play became When You Cure Me. So those two things sort of happened simultaneously. Um, and then as a result of When You Cure Me, I got um, skinned uh, and uh, and suddenly I was working in television. So it all just sort of happened in a great big ball of fun when I was 25. And I got very lucky, um, but got lucky from lots of different angles, if you know, if that makes sense. Before you had that sort of confluence of, of breaks, um, how hard was it to make a living? I mean... Well, you you had a job during the day and then you were writing in your spare time. Yeah, and I was my brother let me live in his house. My brother lived in Croydon and he let me live in his house for very little rent, um, which was very kind of him, uh, and that also made it a bit easier too. But yeah, it was a lot of I was um, working as a learning support worker. Uh, I was doing lots of different bits and pieces of jobs, uh, working as part of a gifted and talented program at another place. Um, but I was trying to, I was trying to survive on three days a week work, and then having um, four days to write, and that meant getting to know the bargain shelves at the supermarket very well and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it was, um, you know, amazing. Can we talk about skins then? About how both how that came about, and then what your role was there, and you know, 
a lot of our listeners will be really interested in playwriting and know a lot about it, but a lot and, and drama, but a lot will really not. So just take us through, you know, how how you got there and then what the nature of the job was, how collaborative it was, were you working with other writers? Just just really kind of lift the lid on that whole experience. Yeah, so I, I got it because um Jamie Britton came to see a reading of When You Cure Me. Uh, when we were just we just had it we did a, a paid reading so people could buy, buy tickets to come and see it and uh, at, at the bush um, before it was commissioned to be put on as a performance and um, he liked that and said to me afterwards quite shyly in the bar and he uh, Jamie Jamie was very young then I think he was twenty years old um, but came up to me in the bar afterwards and went uh, I think you could um, you could write for my show. And I was like, you've got a TV show. That's amazing. Uh, and uh, and he said, yeah, it's called it's going to be called Skins and it's going to be on E4. And I didn't know what E4 was. And uh, and I didn't know anything about him, obviously, because he was just getting started. And then his dad, who he co-created the show with, Brian Elsley, came to the second night of the run and talked to me in the bar afterwards and went, my son came and saw you. Do you remember him? And I was like, the TV guy? Of course, I remember him, and uh, and then he um, he he said, "Come and come and work on the show," and that's sort of how it started. So I was the third writer in after Jamie and Brian, and at the start it was just the three of us sitting in a room, and then slowly more and more people joined the room, and there was uh, a team of um, screenwriters: uh, Ben Schiffer, um, uh, Simon Amstel, um, me. Uh, Brian and Jamie and then there was a, a group of young contributors um, one of whom was Daniel Kaluuya um, who was 16 years old at the time um, and we'd meet every Wednesday between 11 and 5 and just talk about we'd watch an episode of something uh, uh, a teen drama generally and then we'd talk about what worked and what didn't and then we'd talk about what other scripts had come in that week and um, it was an incredible education. And the other key part of the education was being guided by a script editor, Chloe Moss, and Brian himself um, in writing um, the two scripts I wrote for that first series. And literally, he taught me everything about what a writer should be, whilst also allowing me quite a lot of space to make mistakes and mess things up and find different ways through the story it was an incredible experience is that quite unusual to because you hear a lot about um writers rooms in america but you don't hear as far as my understanding you don't have the same setup in britain where people actually sit in a room together you'll have a team of writers but they might go away and write a script each um but it'll be overseen by by someone like a script editor yeah, it, I mean, it, it's changing quite a lot at the moment. And the writer's room system is definitely being brought into this country as the streamers get more and more powerful. And certainly, uh, and, and to some degree, that's brilliant. And in other degrees, that's not. Um, it's a weird, weird time at the moment. And the industry is in quite a lot of flux in terms of what the model is, because the British model did tend to be a writer sits in their room, writes a script, and then the script gets made um, with a lot of input along the way. Skins wasn't quite a writer's room in terms of we didn't sit for a month together breaking down the story into different pieces and then and then hive it off. It was much more let's keep writing and while we write let's talk uh, um, rather than you know uh, breaking breaking the episodes and then writing the episodes. I mean, uh, and I'm not a huge fan of that to be honest. Um, uh, from from my process that I don't really want to sit in a room for a month I, I like writing being a surprise and uh and i think sometimes really interesting work comes out of writing being a surprise uh but but you know uh, uh it, it's happening um uh and it is changing the industry quite a lot uh, as it does you say a surprise is that a surprise to, to you who are writing it or a surprise for the people you then take the work to yeah no a surprise to me that you should you shouldn't that 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 to some degree knowing where you're going is brilliant and to other degrees knowing where you're going is deadly because you are always um, constrained by the possibilities of what you've pre-decided about your characters when your characters can 
do things that don't necessarily um, do. They they can behave in ways that aren't necessarily um, that are beyond the box you put them in. It's really interesting because I think there's an image of screenwriters with their sort of post-it notes on the wall with their characters. You know, strand A is this, strand B is this, and this is where it's going to end up. Um, but you you like to introduce some sort of serendipity into the into the writing process. Yes, and a lot of writers do. I mean, I'm not the only one. Uh, Ronald Harwood, I think, is the person I've stolen that he likes the idea of a surprise, and I I I I, I really believe in that. I mean, if you I did a a writing course once I taught on a writing course once and in which we broke down the first episode of Shameless and knowing Paul's process um I don't think he's someone that does post-it notes it doesn't feel to me like he's someone that does post-it notes and then you break it down and there's a perfect structure there like literally perfect Shameless episode one of series one is just perfect um and that will be because he's been given a lot of guidance and help along the way but that's also because if you've watched a lot of tv you've got things inside you that you know you've got a rhythm inside you you've got the notion of what everything should be inside you you've got the notion of the advert break inside you and what the advert break um should do and uh you know the the upward breath of an advert break um and you if you're heading towards those bits um and you're thinking about those bits then what takes you there doesn't necessarily have to be something that you've preordained um and but you, but the structure is inside you somewhere. TV is quite a structured medium, and so you don't necessarily need to predecide the structure before you write it, or at least that's what I think. It's interesting because when we have novelists on the show, we we always ask them this this plot or plunge question as to how whether they have it determined beforehand, uh, and we get completely varied answers, which is which is fascinating. I suppose you know I. Uh, I had no screenwriting experience, but I've read Save the Cat. And I was sort of astonished at how, like, prescriptive that was. You know, you could go into a Hollywood film with a stopwatch and be like, right, we're 40 minutes in. They're about to have the moment when all fails. I mean, what do you think of of that that kind of interplay between the serendipity of it and, and yeah, hitting the beats and the, the arc and everything like that? It, I mean, it depends what kind of film you're writing. Um, and it depends what you're writing it for. and you know, I, um, there are certain lessons that probably are inside you anyway. I, I don't love those books. Um, I don't, you know, I, I would, I, I, the books that I read and devoured were books like, um, you know, uh, William Goldman's um, Which Lie Did I Tell? And, you know, More Adventures in the street, Screen Trade and stuff like that, where it was very much based on uh, what he was um, discovering as he wrote scripts rather than theorists who aren't script writers who are telling you what the what the what the system should be but but you know if it produces brilliant work then that's fantastic and for some people it does produce brilliant work um, but you know take a film like Moonlight take a film like Parasite do you know what I mean like you know you won't find anything that fits within those rule systems um uh, Nomadland, you know, those are extraordinary films um, and the idea of rules within them is ridiculous. One of those, uh, one of the things those books sort of advocate are, you know, exercises to get into your character's mind, be it sort of diary entries or there's one called Closet, which you may be familiar with. Um, Do you do any of that when you're preparing to write a script or do you just sort of go in? I don't even know. Closet. Closet. (laughs) It's like... Enlighten us, us, Rachel. Uh, It's you have to come up with a character, a location, an object. I've actually only seen the first three, so I don't know what S-A-N-T stand for. Um, But it's basically you come up with them and then you have to try and uh, create a story that fits those, like incorporates all those things. So it's I think it's, you know, get your creative juices flowing. But it's just one of those one of those games that you can play, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I don't do any of that. I do try and write scenes quite early on. And I do try and see, you know, even if it's a planning process, I do try and uh, get used to writing dialogue for a character. And I do throw away a lot of work. Um, so I do, you know, hit the ground running and then trip up and then dust myself down and then start off in a new direction. But, you know, and, and that is to some degree doing that. Um, but mostly it's um, just trying to write the script and trying to see what they talk like and trying to see how they move and the disastrous decisions they make. 
um, rather than, you know, uh, uh, yeah. So we're, we're really fascinated by this process stuff on the podcast, to the extent that it has been suggested that process is, in fact, the, the word of the podcast. But I was wondering if we could talk about your process in some more detail, um, and perhaps through an example. I know we're jumping around a bit chronologically, but I've been watching National Treasure this week, which I really enjoyed. And could we just maybe just talk about that from, like, from the beginning, from the conception of the idea, through your working methods, the edits, like just really the real like, procedural of how, how the sausage gets made? So that started with um, a lunch, which sounds very Hollywood. Uh, I think it's the only lunch I've ever been on where I've been pitched like that. And it was um, George Faber, who's <coughs> a hero of mine, and the and who was the exec producer of Skins and Shameless, which was where I started. So it's someone that I'd been aware of for a very, very long time. And he was just starting out his company, his new company, um, on leaving company pictures called The Forge. And he took me to lunch and he said, I think there is a drama to be written about um, someone within this crisis. Um, so someone within, in the centre of this um, uh, historic sex crime crisis. And, and the thing that he said to me, which made me prick up my ears, is that you tell it from the um, perpetrator's perspective and how you get inside that. Uh, and we started talking and we talked about a few people, probably whom I shouldn't name for legal reasons, um, who've been through these things. And we talked about those images of that those families walking into court and the way that those families operate. And that was my starting point, how to get inside those families, how to how to tell the story of those families. And I went away and wrote a draft. Um, uh, there wasn't any real, um, there wasn't any real discussion uh, beyond that until I produced the first app, and I produced this first app, and I tried to do. I'd been working. Me and Shane uh, Meadows had been working quite. A, I think we'd done eighty-eight, and I think we were in the process of writing this thing to ninety by that point. So we we worked together three three or four times, and one thing that we'd got into by that point was the idea of longer scenes and we got very excited by them if you've seen those shows you'll see how excited and the virtues i think we, there's like six scenes in the whole bloody show um uh but you know we got we got very into like the way that television can do that the, the way that television can stop time and so one thing i did in the middle of that one of national treasure was write a um uh uh a 20 minute scene, a 20 page scene in the middle of it between Paul and Dee, which got cut down slightly in the edit, but that sort of notion. Which one is that? The, the, which, the one where which... he goes to her apartment and they're just talking oh, yeah, and she yeah, tells yeah. the story of her yeah. dream and all, all you know, and all and that. And the, the, pre, the priest and that sort of exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, and, and that sort of set a structure for how we wanted to tell it in terms of those long scenes and those long examinations. And that it's just it's going to be trying to look inside the head of a damaged person and that question as to what that damage means and whether that damage means he's damaged others. Um, and the thing that we had at the beginning was that there was going to be a moment where we went away and we told the story of someone that was the victim of him. Um, and then the longer the show went on, the more it felt like the way we can do that is through the daughter. And that, and that by staying within this tight unit, we can ask questions about the legal system. We can ask questions about the perversion of celebrity, um, and we can um, and we can be slightly more damning than if we were trying to tell a full story. By telling a partial story well, we could do something that felt like it had the impact um, that we wanted to have. Um, and the thing that we, the interesting thing is that then you go on to these um, discussions about how we deal with press and all those kind of things. And the thing that we were trying to say in press all the time, which we really believed, is we, we didn't want to be the definitive Jimmy Savile drama. We didn't want to be the drama that told that entire story, that that needed to be told by other people. That needed to be told by other writers, frankly. Um, uh, we wanted to be a part of that. And there have been drama since like three girls that aren't exactly looking at that sort of thing, but are looking at it from a different perspective. 
Um, uh, so we didn't want to say, oh, we are the Jimmy Savile drama, but we felt like this was our way of telling the story of a particular box within that. With something that's obviously so sensitive, how do you establish a tone, you know, from the, your desired tone from the outset of the script? You do a lot of talking to people. Um, uh, and actually, I wrote at one and then we started doing a, a hell of a lot of research. Um, uh, you start to, um, you talk to police, you talk to, you talk to victims, you talk to, um, and you, I, we we made the decision we weren't going to talk to anyone that was um, uh, being prosecuted uh, because we felt like that wasn't something we necessarily needed, that we had an idea of how we were going to tell that part of the story. Um, but, and you hope that that truth uh, sort of seeps into you and that you, and you have those people led on your shoulders all the time who are your, your um, Jiminy Crickets um, uh, saying, uh, do us justice uh, and don't fail us. Um, and it's terrifying, but that, that I think really helps. Um, in terms of the tone, you never want to fall into a trap for me, or the thing that I'm always worried about is falling into the trap of the polemic, where there's a simple answer to the question. Um, you want to make it complicated because these cases are complicated. And if you present a case that's simple, you know, if you tell the story of Harvey Weinstein, you're not going to tell a very interesting story that requires people to think. Or, you know, you're going to tell the story of a monster and you're going to watch that monster um, uh, be ex exposed slowly. Whereas if you tell the story of, I don't know if you've seen the film The Assistant, um, it's a tremendous film. But what they've done is they've told the story of a young woman in an office where this perversion is clearly occurring and how she then um, works through the issue and you're seeing the systems that protect Weinstein, which is a lot more interesting than, than seeing the monster himself. Um, and the systems that protect Weinstein are almost more condemning because you can see how it happens. Whereas with him, you just kind of go, he's... Uh, an aberration of a man, and you don't know anyone like Weinstein, but you know an awful lot of people who protected him. And by looking at that protection network, you are asking a more profound question, I think. How does your involvement then continue as the, the thing is being made, as it's being filmed and so forth? Perhaps again in the context of National Treasure, do you at some point just hand it over to the producer and the director and they do it, or are you doing rewrites as it's being produced? Again, on the process, how does that work? We're, we're, you're always doing rewrites. Um, Mark Munden, who directed National Treasure, who I've worked with three times and love dearly, um, uh, also has a rehearsal process. So you're in a room with the actors for two weeks prior to filming when you're analysing characters and, and building and rebuilding certain bits to fit them and challenging them and they're challenging you. Um, as uh, as you're going through the process, we're just um, and then you're rewriting all the time because of different things. So Mark and I are shooting at the moment, and uh, we have locked a script, but there's changes because of last minute casting changes. There's changes because of um, music rights clearances. Uh, there's changes because of this, that, and the other that are causing all sorts of little ructions within the. Um, within the show. Um, uh, and also, uh, I'm getting calls from, in this case, Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer to say, uh, I've, you know, I'm going through the sides for tomorrow. I've got an idea of how to do something slightly different that suits me slightly better. Um, uh, is that okay? And, um, and that's, I love that bit of the process where they're sort of taking on authorship responsibility for the story and becoming authors themselves. You have to be pretty flexible then. I mean, your work is very much not done once you've put the words on the page. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, um, you do monstrous amount of drafts. Uh, it's a very, very collaborative medium. And telly's particularly collaborative because you're, there's also the, the big thing of budget, which affects film to some degree, 
um, uh, but film, you tend to have arrived at a budget uh, a, a bit earlier on. Telly, you the the moment when a line producer gets involved is quite late on, and so you're constantly skinning the dog as you're trying to find a way to um, afford the show and make it filmable. Uh, so yeah, no, it's a it's a constant sort of adjustment and readjustment. But one of one of yeah, one of my favorite stories is um in this country when they had to rewrite a scene to just be set in the kitchen because they didn't want to set up loads of different locations and they wrote that brilliant episode that's just about like the turkey dinosaurs and the pizzas i don't know if you've seen it but it's it's a brilliant workaround for what was a budget problem yeah well daisy and charlie i um my wife um manages daisy and charlie so um uh i love them and i love the way that they uh uh find solutions to things on the kind of dynamics of the whole industry and stuff, um, there's, a, there's a book that I was recommended uh, by Patrick Radan Keefe, the American writer, called Monster, Living Off the Big Screen. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's by um, John Gregory Dunn, who was Joan Didion's husband, who was like a sort of serious... They, they, you know, and they had this weird split life where they were, they were writing like really serious journalism and like books and stuff in New York half the time. And they lived in LA the other half the time doing like all this screenwriting work. And it's, it's, it's an absolutely hilarious book. The premise is that they were commissioned in the mid-80s to write, to adapt, I think, this drama about a, like a really serious story about the suicide of a really troubled TV anchor. And then it got bought by Disney and went through 48 drafts and became a rom-com with Robert Redford. But it, it's an absolutely hilarious book, but it's about, it's about Hollywood in the 90s. And it's just kind of crazy excess, like money. The Japanese have bought the studios but have no idea how it's going on. And obviously it's a kind of pastiche but like is it how what kind of world is it that you know tv and film uh so british tv and film is very different from american film i don't i i i would i've only really made one tv show that was made largely with american money so i don't really know but i've made a few films that were made with american money uh it is very different it's it's um you it can be crazy um and I can't tell you the crazy stories because I would get in trouble. But there have been crazy stories of, you know, doing rewrites for specific actors. There's this thing called weeklies. Um, and weeklies are very nice jobs, which are really satisfying to do, um, actually, where you're paid for a week or two weeks to solve a specific problem in the script. Um, and you're just brought on to have a look at it and, and, um, and reshape it, and uh, I tend to, I tend to get the um, character passes. Uh, you know that that's what I get hired to do every now and again is to do a character pass for a specific actor or a, or a studio note, um, and then you go in and you've just got to kind of uh, get your spanner out and, and do it. That's I'd say technical script writing, um, and I I like technical script writing and. Certainly, if you're at the end of a project where you feel like you're battered and bruised all over the place, there's something really nice about going in and uh, getting your spanner out and feeling successful for a little bit, um, uh, feeling like you've done something of worth and people being grateful for your work uh, rather than disappointed in you. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, and that, and that is the, the crazier end of Hollywood in that, it feels like you know scriptwriters become two a penny then, but uh, it does. Um, they are they are looking for a very specific type of film. Those those projects and they are generally very very good at getting that kind of film. And you are aware of that, and you're aware that there's a producer's eye on the whole process, and that that's more of an authorial eye than a single writer is. Um, and that's where you get films like where. You know where a a, a, a TV anchor becomes, uh, you know, it, where it becomes a rom com for Robert Redford. Uh, on other things, you've got a surprising amount of latitude. I mean, I did uh, Enola Holmes for Legendary. Legendary are a huge studio, a huge studio who make huge films. Um, and Enola Holmes was a very important part of their slate for them, but they gave me so much space and. Uh, I was given one of the best notes I've ever been given uh, at the, uh, after the read-through of that, which have been a pretty good read-through. Um, and Mary Parent, who runs Legendary, went, 
uh, I still can't feel her emotional journey. I still can't feel Inona's emotional journey. And we started talking about it. And she said, that's all brilliant. I, you now have five days. And in those five days, you need to pretend like you've never written this show before. I'm imploring you to rewrite yourself, but you've got to rewrite yourself like you weren't the writer who, who's done this whole, whole process. And actually, that was a, like a really, really, you know, it was a really kind of um, uh, freeing note to just kind of go, go at it like you would a writer employed to do a weekly on it. And um, and she had no intention of bringing another writer for it. She wanted it to be my voice all the way through. Um, but she wanted me to really challenge myself at that moment. And um, and she was really right. It, it made a huge difference to what the film felt like. I mean, is that not really difficult? Because I find if I've been working on something for ages, um, it, you get too close to it. It's very hard to see you know how to fix it is it because you you had the guidance of the emotional journey you'd already talked about it you sort of knew where you needed to focus your attention yeah absolutely absolutely and I'd heard it you know I'd heard Millie read it as well so I had Millie's voice in my head um uh but it was also just oh right okay that's my job uh and uh if I want to make this film as good as possible I've got to put everything I've all my you know, all the trials and tribulations of writing a film, I've got to sort of put them in a black box and then, you know, and then live in a white room where anything was possible again. Um, and obviously by then there was so much stuff that was set in stone in terms of we'd scheduled locations, we'd done all this kind of stuff, so there were limits to what I could do. But that was really, it was just a really good provocation. Um, but yeah, rewriting is the worst, you know, that, Rewriting draft, I, I mean, I did 46 drafts of, at one of his time materials. Um, rewriting from draft 30 onwards is pretty bleak. It's a, it's a bleak experience because you're just kind of going, I don't quite know how to do this anymore. But then you reach out and the good thing about telly is you are, there are people that are there to support you. Um, and there are people there that have got the interest of the project at, at the front of their brain. Um, and so we'll help you fight the fires that you need to fight in order to make it work. When it's one of those cases where it's got to 40 drafts or so, is that because there's a difference of vision, like how you want to do it and how the producer wants to do it is distinct? Or have you, have you experienced situations like that where there's been you know, someone who's, who else wants to do it differently from how you want to do it? Yeah, I mean, on his done materials, it was because we were trying to sell it to America and it's a bewildering book. Uh, and it's a bewildering book that's full of ideas. And it wasn't a difference of um, opinion between me and Jane. We were always sort of getting to places at draft five, draft 10, draft 15, where we were happy with what we'd done. But then we'd be set a challenge by another broadcaster. And because we were, we needed the money of an American sale, we were rising to meet that challenge. Um, and uh with his done materials we went in lots of different directions in order to in order to do that and you know directions where suddenly the magisterium were behaving in a different way where dust was explained where different things happened in different orders in order to make us provoke us to feel an emotional charge at a different point about lyra you know that it was it was a it was a frantic search for something that everyone could believe in and uh, and that was tough, uh, but we got to make the show, um, and we've got to make three series of the show because of that. Those forty-six drafts, because we found a place that people were comfortable to invest in the show. Um, but yeah, it was tough. In terms of adaptation, I heard a great quote. Now I can't remember who it's from. Helpfully, uh, that you need to be promiscuous to be faithful. Is that something that you agree with? And how do you approach source material, particularly very beloved source material like his dark materials, um, uh, Harry Potter, Enola Holmes as well, to an extent? It all depends on what task you've been set. And also, I, I think the, the question you need to ask yourself right in the beginning of the process is how loyal do I need to be? Um, and on his dark materials, it felt like this is the definitive medium for his dark materials. TV feels like if it's going to get a satisfying ad adaptation anywhere, that TV feels like the the great big opportunity for it. So we need to be constantly returning to the books. We need to be constantly challenging ourselves. On A Christmas Carol, uh, Charles Dickens has had his day um, in that he's it's been done 15 million times. 
by 50 million different dramatists. So the question is not, how do I do my best by Charles Dickens? It's, how do I do my version of A Christmas Carol? Because everyone knows it and everyone's seen it a million times and we've got to do something that's fresh and provocative. Uh, so it's that sort of, it's the question of, um, it's the question of loyalty. So I, I like promiscuous in order to be faithful, but I think that, it, yeah, the, the degree of promiscuity, the degree to which you've got those, um, to which you've got what those, what those things you put outside your house if you're a swinger? Pampas grass. We, we uh, don't know, Jack. Tell us. <laughs> you've never heard about pampas never, grass? I've never heard about pampas. I have pampas grass in my living room. Maybe I need to reposition it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, if you've got pampas grass in your in your front garden it means I didn't mean to put it outside by the way I meant to put it away from the window <laughs> just I just realized how that sounded <laughs> uh and um yeah so if you it, that, that yeah so I suppose it's yeah the degree to which you've got your pampas grass yeah um it's a rule of the show that we always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives um and be as uh, specific or as general as you want to be but you know how how does it work how, what, what are the units i thought you're going to ask how much money have you well got? i mean we'd, we'd love to know but you don't have to answer us um but you know how are you you're paid by the you know how, what is the unit is it by the page by the word and then how as your profile is built have you know the amounts how is it how has it worked out and again we don't we don't want to like totally grill you here but obviously we want to know as much as you'll tell us so so uh film and tv are well paid medium um the the difference between film and tv is in film you're paid by the draft whereas in tv you're paid by the product at the end of it so in film you can do a draft of something which pays a lot better than a year's work on tv um Theatre is weirder because the amount you get paid up front is less. If the show is successful and has a future life, a commercial life, then you get then you get a constant ongoing income. Whereas with film and TV, there's a little bit of that after the event, but mainly it gets swallowed up in accounting. So, you know, um, Wonder, a film I wrote, did very well for its budget, but the money, you know, I've I've never got more money for it. Uh, it just, and I knew that that would be the case, and I'm totally comfortable with that. It just, it just goes somewhere in the, in the, you know, yeah, in in a book somewhere. Um, uh, so yes, and and then certainly if you get a film on streaming now, you're not going to get money for, you know, I think I think they are negotiating that now, and I don't quite know where it's at in terms of, you know, the, the amount of streams you get will change the money that you get as a result. Um, but I I certainly haven't seen any streaming money for anything that I've written. And how much of a difference to your, I guess, how much money you could ask for did working on things like Harry Potter and winning prizes for that? You know, what difference did that make to your profile? It's really hard to work that out, partly because I'm doing so much at the same time. Um, uh I don't think it made a great difference to my TV career, for instance. Um, I think film, it probably did have an impact. And certainly that thing of having something which you can kind of go, that worked. Um, and that worked in a way that it worked commercially and critically um, is really helpful. Um, uh, but, you know, th there's not many of those kind of plays. Um uh, and so it's not like, oh, you've written Star Wars. Now you can write Star Trek and, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and and Godzilla and, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's not like that kind of thing. It's much more sort of like, oh, that was, that worked and that was um, lovely. I mean, Harry Potter was, the biggest change I think it made is, was in my confidence. Um, and I'm still, it, it's a divisive play. So, uh, it, for um, although it's a really amazing thing to be part of, it's still the thing that I get the most like tweets and stuff sent me about how ashamed of myself I should be for writing it, which I totally understand why people feel that passionately actually, and I think it's and I think fan passion is not something to be afraid of, but um, but it did make a difference to my confidence in terms of just that thing of sitting in a theatre. And sitting in a theatre that was absolutely full of people that were really excited by what you've done. And I was part of a team. 
I, you can't really an- analyse which bit was you and which bit was other people. But, you know, when tears are shed for characters that you've written um, and you feel the whole theatre is weeping, that's really exciting. And it does it does empower you as a writer. I do, you know, I, I, I still get a kick out of watching the show uh, with people, though I haven't for a while. We've had various um, writers on the show who do some screenwriting in conjunction with, say, writing novels or, or writing nonfiction. How do, I suppose, you and other, like, pros, as it were, who are, like, through, through and through uh, screenwriters, how do you feel about these, like, carpetbaggers who come in and say, like... Oh, wow, right, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, get off our porch. Um, uh, no, I think it's brilliant. And, uh, you know, and normal people with a massive, massive hit. And uh, that was a collaboration, I know, between um, Alice Birch and Sally Rooney. But, uh, it, you know, I'm sure that there were times when it really benefited from her authorial voice. No, I think it's exciting. Um, I hope it doesn't get to a situation where um, adaptation becomes the thing that's exclusively done by authors because I like ad- adapting stuff uh, but that's just personally me um, uh, yeah you've mentioned doing a lot of projects at one time could you tell us a little bit about how you juggle all of those different things and what your sort of working hours are like it's a sort of theme of the podcast that some people are very close to burning out and work ridiculously long hours every day seven days a week um are you one of those people yes though i've got a kid and the kid is uh, i'm doing homeschool at the moment so um my hours are greatly reduced i love working uh before i met rach my wife i was living alone in luton um and very happily working seven days a week 12 to 14 hours a day and it didn't you know i just it, it was I got a huge kick out of it. Um, I think writing is the greatest thing in the world and I am absolutely psychologically dependent upon it. Uh, When I'm in a bad mood, Rachel will send me off to write uh, to make me better. Um, So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not someone who uh, struggles with that thing of getting in front of a computer. Um, I I like it. Um, And so I would do it all the time if it weren't for the fact that I have a family and I love them too. How important is it to be in London if you're making your way in, in film and TV? You mentioned Luton because I once spent a week in a travel lodge in Luton for a, a huge story about Luton Town Football Club. I embedded with them and I went shopping with their central midfield and everything like that. So I, I, I've, I've, I've served a bit of an apprenticeship in Luton. But like, how important is it to like, come to London and be in that milo of, of theatre and TV? For, for a playwright, when I was coming through, it was quite important. Um, I hope it's becoming less important now. Uh, I certainly never wanted to live in London. I live in London because my wife has a job here. Um, I don't f- consider myself as having a job here. My my main work is in Cardiff, where his other materials was filmed, um, uh, or in Paris, where the editing was filmed. You know, that that that, that I'm wherever the show is. Um, and can move around a lot. And, you know, my longest working relationship is with Shane Meadows. Shane lives in Nottingham and very happily lives in Nottingham. And no one requires Shane to come to London too much. And he doesn't come to London too much. Um, uh, but I, but for theatre writing at the time when I was coming through, that thing of being in shows and meeting people and just being around for those sorts of events, I think had an importance. Um, although I, yeah, I wish it wasn't so. So in ordinary times, obviously, we're in the midst of COVID at the minute, you'd be travelling really quite a lot. Uh, quite a lot. Um, I, I actually need to travel more than I did. I was getting into a place where I was quite, I'm very shy and find going to set really difficult because it requires me to make conversation with people and I find that exhausting. Uh, and I'd much rather be at my computer writing and I'd sort of constructed a world for myself where I was the person that sat at his computer rather than went to set. And I actually think that was a mistake and that I needed the relationship that being at set allows you to foster. So when ordinary times return, hopefully, um, I will be um, going to set more than I, than I had been. What's your thought on the whole streaming services piece? Obviously, it's a massive subject. And we had um, 
Emily Hayward Whitlock, the book to film agent on a few weeks ago, and she talks very interestingly about, you know, what that's done and how it's changing the power dynamics and where, where the money is and also the kind of work that's being produced. What, what do you feel about that? It's hard to know at the moment. And if we have seen, if we have seen the top league of theatrical, if that is what happened, and if AMC can't come back, um, you know, in America and uh, and really uh, and come back with the with the with the number of cinemas that they had, if if it becomes much more of a niche thing going to the cinema, then the whole world of it is going to change. Um, streaming is, I mean, to some degree, it, it just it just changes the choices that are made. But I don't think anyone can say that theatrical was in a good place. Um, you know, that we were heading into a world where it was literally only the superhero film. And that was the only thing that was breaking through. And that the number of non-superhero films that were make, breaking through were becoming less and less. And that was partly to do, due to the death of the star um, and the death of someone that just could go, I'm Will Smith and I'm going to make a film about the pursuit of happiness. Um, you know that as soon as that is as soon as that dynamic started to change then the films just literally became exclusively men and occasionally women in capes and i like those films i just don't want to be fed them as uh you know as a sole diet streaming uh we are that i don't think i can say actually but you know that 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 to some degree that the the choices are still based on an algorithm of sorts. And to some degree, there is a, um, a notion of what uh, what an audience needs on Netflix and what an audience needs on Disney Plus and all those kind of things. But because what they're looking for is passion rather than just simply numbers, so they are they, their metrics are not just um, how many people watched Enola Holmes, it's how many people would stay on the service because of Enola Homes, how many people um, joined up to the service because of Enola Homes, how many people were brought to Netflix because of Enola Homes, how much was Enola Homes penetrating worldwide, all those sorts of things. And where did Enola Homes do well? Um, it might lead to that the choices will be different and it might lead to a really interesting new diversity of films. And certainly the appetite towards the more independent film does seem to be larger on Netflix than it was in the multiplex. Um, but uh, who knows? And we're in the middle of a streaming war at the moment where they are making so much content. Um, once that dies down and once there are clear leaders and once certain people have bought other people so that, that, that you know, that there's these great big fat um, uh, things out there that we all subscribe to, what that will mean, I don't know. Um, but I, I mean, I've got a film that's happening, um, which I don't think I can talk about, but it's happening because of Netflix money and it is far from, you know, it involves, uh, two young women, neither of whom are stars. Um, and it's predominantly in another language and it's, uh, about something that's quite complicated and difficult. Uh, and uh, I've co-written it with someone that's much cleverer than me, but um, it's, uh, you know, it's a film that I'll be really proud to have made, and I don't know that it would be made in a more traditional model. I'm going to go and look that up on IMDb Pro after this. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time, so I just uh, wondered if I could ask one more question about whether there's a project that you've wanted to do for ages and haven't got it done, or so, you know, what's your ideal adaptation or story that you haven't written yet but would like to i'd, I'd like to write something really good um uh and uh I, I i that's that's honestly my intention every morning and i've written stuff i'm really proud of i i think i think there's a project out there um that if i get right um will be um you know will be better and uh, I'd say it's probably to do with disability and um, and disability certainly is my focus because I think socially it's really important uh, that we are telling stories about disability and because of my history as a disabled person and because of my involvement in the disabled world feels like something I can have a unique angle on 
but the fight to get disabled representation on screen is huge and we haven't won it um and it's starting to change the likes of Ruth Madeley are making it start to change but it's a really really slow journey and uh and so yes I'd like to write something really good preferably about disability that's what I'd like to do and I've got a, a really quick follow-up on that actually we're, we're close to time but could you talk a bit about how the experience of illness has um has affected your work and so you have this condition with heat is that right yes I spent six months bed bound because I became allergic not just to physical and artificial heat but also to my body heat so I was provoking reaction whenever I moved and it took me about 15 years to get over it um and I'm not a disabled person anymore but I was a disabled person during that time and yeah it was a it was huge uh because I couldn't do what other people did and um, and the restrictions on me uh, were far less than the restrictions on some of my friends uh, in terms of the lives they have to lead. But um, uh, yeah, but, but it was uh, it was um, it was seismic. And coming out as a disabled person and sort of being accepted in the disabled community was was also massive for me. And I have deep awe and respect for uh, disabled artists and and very proud to consider myself one of the number. Um, well, thank you very much for your time, Jack. I know that you're extremely busy, so we really appreciate you uh, no, thank you so uh, much. making time for us. I'm really, really chuffed to be on this thing, so thank you very much. Hello, it's us again. Uh, Rich, what did you take away particularly from the talk with Jack? I took, well, firstly, I feel like we did not even scratch the surface of what we could have talked to Jack about. I mean, the hour went very, very quickly. Um, the thing that I that stood out for me was the number of drafts he did for his art materials. And that seems to be a theme that comes through when working in, t- uh, working in TV and film, um, just the amount of collaboration and the amount of people that have input and the number of notes that you have to take from producers and directors and everyone else I mean it's not it's quite different to the work that you and I do where there is a point where it's finished I think it, obviously there is a point where it's finished in tv but yeah I I, th- I think that's really true and it's like it's like the idea that it's not really a sort of auteur model at all right that it's, it's multiple people I mean I, I I drew that from him as well I think I love having these uh screenwriters on I think it's really great that we've now had him and um and James Graham as well because it's not a world I know a huge amount about um but he was just a really gracious guy, I thought, and kind of, um, I, I, I watched some of National Treasure before we did it, and I, th- I found that was very powerful and, and kind of very humble as well, given the level of success he'd had as well. So I, I think it was um, it was really good. What, what have you been up to, Richard? I have been, I feel like every time we ask, <laughs> you ask me this, I have nothing new to say because of lockdown and because I'm just doing the same things as usual. But you have some very exciting news. I do, yeah. Uh, my book came out last um, last week. Uh, that's the Changing of the Guard, the British Army since nine eleven. Um, it's it's creating a, an interesting response. Um, yeah, it's been good. There's been some um, a lot of a lot of press coverage. Some of it really, really positive. Some very uh, uh, well. There's been a debate. We'll put it that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been good. I mean, it's just a it's just unfamiliar territory, right? I've not been through this before, and. Um, it's weird because it had been you know something I've been working on for so long, and the roots getting it out was so challenging. Um, but it's great it's in the world, and it's, there's a lot of chat and a lot of buzz about it. And I think that I think that ultimately is um, is a really positive thing. I think I think the experience if you had a book that you'd worked on for years and it just sort of sunk would be would be absolutely heartrending. And it's definitely not what is happening with this. So does it feel like a weight off your shoulders now that it's out there in the world? I don't know. It's sort of it's it's. It, it just feels really unfamiliar. Like I haven't been through this process before. It, it feels like it doesn't, I think the key thing is like, it doesn't belong to you anymore, right? Like people go and read it and they form judgments on it and, and, and post slightly weird photos of it on Twitter and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think we'll have to see what, what comes and what next. Obviously we'll talk about this in more detail on, on the podcast coming up, but yeah, it's been, it's been a really good, uh, good launch so far. And I think, um, 
by the time this goes out to air, there'll be there'll be some more stuff in the in the public domain about it. So yeah, that's that's what's been going on with me. Um, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aiken. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danhauser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.